Well, let me add my welcome to you, to NYC. Uh, I'm very glad that you managed to navigate your way to the campsite. I'm glad that you managed to navigate your way through the decision tree this morning. Uh, I didn't actually get to be part of that myself, but I did find that um, I was led to attempt to answer many questions through the uh, Clinton's test, and uh, that was a very enjoyable process. This week we're going to be having five talks in the evening, um, or during the day as well, uh, on guidance, on what the Bible has to say about how God leads us. The first four talks that I'm going to look at, uh, they're really trying to put together a bit of a framework for guidance. The last one is putting that framework into practice by looking at the topic of work. But before we get into it, uh, let me just ask you a question. And the question is why? Why would you come to an NYC on navigating your life? Now, I guess some of you uh, have come because people have said to you, you've got to come to NYC, NYC is amazing, it'll be the best week of your life. And I hope we don't disappoint you. <laughs> I presume that most of you, though, have some kind of interest in the topic. Navigating life. And navigating life seems like a fairly important thing to do, doesn't it? And it's not really something that you can avoid. One way or another, you are going to navigate life. But is there a better way to navigate it than just by kind of bumbling through it? What I want to argue in these talks is that actually, yes, there is. That God actually does promise to guide us. And that his guidance makes a huge difference to the job of navigating life. And one of the ways that God guides us is by revealing to us his big picture. And knowing the big picture really helps when it comes to making decisions. Uh, let me give you an example. This year, God willing, I will turn 40 uh, in about two weeks, actually. Uh, and that probably feels unbelievably old to you. Trust me, it feels a lot older to me. <laughs> and I'm not much of a birthday guy. Uh, it never occurs to me that my birthday is coming up. Um, and to be honest, I, I'm slightly nervous about this one because I'm worried that my wife is going to try and throw me a surprise birthday party. And why do I think that? <laughs> well, it's because that's what she did when I turned 30. <laughs> See, my wife Shelley, uh, she had told me that we were going off to uh, a friend's place for dinner, just as a sort of casual uh, birthday dinner. I thought, fantastic, that's my kind of thing. I love that sort of low-key, just hanging out with friends. But we were running late. And Shelley had been taking ages to get ready, which was not that unusual. And I was doing my usual grumping about it, which unfortunately was not unusual either. And when we finally got into the car, after we were already due at our friends, Shelley said, oh, I just need to grab some stuff from church on the way. I said, are you serious? Like, we're already late. But she insisted, no, 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 this was, this was important to her. We had to do this. And so we drove to church, and I sort of grumped my way towards the door, and I just started to say, why is this always happening? as I opened the door, and suddenly the lights came on, and all these people leapt out and shouted, Happy Birthday! And I 
system is fun. <laughs> I had no idea. And it suddenly struck me the deception of my wife. <laughs> based on what you thought was the actual state of affairs, I need to discover that it wasn't reality at all. And all your choices ended up looking a little bit dumb in hindsight, because you didn't know the big picture. See, I thought we were just running late for dinner with some friends. But all the time, Shelley had this dastardly scheme that she'd been working to get me to this party at exactly the right time, to not get there too early so that people would have time to arrive. And I just had no idea. If I had, I would have made different choices. I wouldn't have got frustrated with Shelley. I wouldn't have grunt. But I made bad decisions because, well, because it's simple, but also because I didn't know the big picture. I didn't know what was going on. The decisions that you're facing at the moment. Should I stay in this course or should I change to another? Who am I going to spend time with at NYC? Should I get married? Those questions are not necessarily related, but they could be. <laughs> if so, when and to whom? Well, what, what job should I get? What should I actually do with my life? And if I want to navigate life, then it really helps to know the big picture. And fortunately, <coughs> God has revealed it to us. So come with me to chapter 4 of Revelation, and we'll see what's going on. We'll see the big picture. So Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. After appearing to John uh, in chapter 1 and giving him letters to send to the seven churches in Asia Minor, Jesus, that's the voice that John first heard back in chapter 1, invites John up into heaven itself to see what is about to take place. So we're told right here at the start of chapter 4, that Jesus is going to show us the big picture. He's going to show us a heaven's eye view, a God's eye view of what is about to happen. John tells us, And once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. I wonder who you expect to see at that point. The, sort of an old man in white robes with a beard, or something like that. Well, what John sees is someone with the appearance of Jasper and Ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. In verse 5, we're told that flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. And in front of the throne, there are seven lamps, like a seven-branch candlestick in the tabernacle, in the temple. But these lamps, they're not metal and olive oil. This is the Spirit of God himself. And before the throne is something that looks like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. What's all this about? Well, what John and what God is showing us 
is something that reminds us of when God rescued Israel from Egypt. When he did that, long time before John, he invited Moses and Aaron and the seventy elders of Israel up to the top of Mount Sinai. And when he brought them up to the top to meet with him, they looked up and they saw God through something like pavement made out of lapis lazuli, as bright as blue, as bright blue as the sky. And what we're seeing there, what they saw from below, now John sees from above. That clear blue pavement that Moses and Aaron and the elders looked up through to see God is what John now sees before the throne as God looks down on his world, ruling it from his heavenly throne. That's what is being described here. The one on the throne is God himself. And around God's throne in verse 4, John sees 24 other thrones with 24 elders seated on them. Who are the elders? Well, I think they represent the people of God, both Old and New Testament. The 12 tribes of Israel plus the 12 apostles, ruling alongside God. And in the very centre, John sees four living creatures. These are the cherubim that you read about in the book of Ezekiel. The beings who carry God's very throne. Verse 7 tells us, the first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Numbers are quite important in the book of Revelation. They have significance. Yes, we have numbers a bit like that. A hundred when you're playing cricket, that's, that's an extraordinarily significant number. Ninety-nine is significant. But that's kind of disappointingly significant because we can get to the 100. 110? No one cares about it. Clear, isn't it? Like you made 10 more runs in a century, but no one cares about it. 100, that's the important number. Well, in Revelation, the number 7 is an important number. It reminds us of God the Creator who made the world in seven days. 6 reminds us of humans who are made on the sixth day. 24 is 2 times 12, the Old and New Testament people of God. And 4, well, that represents the totality of creation. We still actually use it that way today. We talk about the four corners of the earth, or the four winds of the earth, or the four points of the compass. And so these four creatures that we have here, they seem to represent the totality of living beings. There's the lion, who represents the wild animals, the ox, the domesticated animals, the eagle, the birds, and the pinnacle of all God's creation, the human. I guess it's a little bit hard to have a fish, isn't it? Because he would be a fish out of water. <laughs> and the living creatures, they're covered with eyes, front and back. So they see everything. And they have six wings, they can go everywhere. And yet these awesome creatures who can see everything and go everywhere, what are they doing? Well, they're rooted to the spot, with their eyes fixed on the one who sits on the throne. 
and day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The picture we're getting shown here is the whole creation worshipping the one who sits on the throne, the glorious one, Yahweh, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth who was from eternity past, is now, and will be for eternity to come. And we're told in verse 9 that whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power, for you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. It's an extraordinary picture, really, uh, if you try and picture it. Every time the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne, the elders fall down and they, they place their crowns before him. But how often are the living creatures giving glory and honour and thanks to the one who sits on the throne? Well, constantly. So you, the elders are sort of, I don't know, like falling down and they put their crowns down and they put them down again. <laughs> it's kind of hard to picture in a way, but it's not hard to see what is being said. John is saying that the one the entire universe revolves around is God. Not Caesar, not John, not you, not me. John is saying that the universe doesn't revolve around us, it revolves around God. I can stop thinking about it for a moment, that's obvious, isn't it? Of course the universe doesn't revolve around me, and yet, somehow it goes against all my instincts. David Foster Wallace pointed out, here is just one example of the total wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute centre of the universe. The realist, most vivid and important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centredness, he says, because it's so socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us. It's our default setting, wired into our boards at birth. The total wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. That's stupid, but very often I, I do feel like the universe revolves around me, or at least that it ought to. And it's kind of frustrating when that doesn't quite work, when people cut me off in traffic. But they know, but they know it's about me. Well, it revolves around me. I get upset when things don't revolve around me. But here's the big picture. The absolute centre of the universe. The realist, most vivid and important person in existence is not you. It's not me. It's God. The creator of heaven and earth. Of all that is seen and unseen 
who was and is and is to come. And this is critical for us to grasp if we're going to navigate life. Because if your compass, when you're navigating, always points towards you, you're lost. Your compass is useless. It's the same with life. If your internal compass always points to you as the true God, it's useless. You're incapable of navigating life. Because the true North, the center of the universe, that's not you. It's God. In chapter 5, verse 1, John says, Then I saw in the right hand a king who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. What is that? What is this scroll? Well, it turns out that under Roman law, wills, as in your last will and testament, you know, what do you want to happen to your estate when you die, well, that were actually sealed with seven seals. The person making the will wrote it out, and then they invited the heir, the executor of the estate, and five witnesses to signify that this was their authentic will. And they do that by each one of them tying or rolling up a scroll and then tying a string around it and then dumping a bit of uh, wax onto it, onto the knot, and pressing the seal of their ring into it. And when it came to opening the will, the heir and the executor had to be there, along with a majority of the five witnesses. Only then could the scroll be opened and read. And that's actually the situation we find ourselves in at the start of Revelation chapter 5. God is holding his last will and testament. The thing that describes his inheritance in his right hand. It's waiting to be opened. And yet there's a point. Because a mighty angel cries out, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? That's a very good question because when you stop and think about it, who could possibly be worthy to open this scroll? In fact, at first, no one can be found, and John weeps and weeps. It's no wonder because if this scroll is not open, then there's no inheritance, there's no future, there's nothing for the children to look forward to. And yet as John weeps and weeps, one of the elders speaks to him, and what does he tell him? Well, he tells him the gospel. He says, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, sure, that's not two ways to live. It's probably not the gospel outline that you memorised, but it is the gospel. In Genesis chapter 48, recording events nearly 4,000 years ago, the grandson of Abraham, Jacob, also known as Israel, is about to die. And as he approaches death, he gathers his 12 sons and he blesses each one of them with a specific blessing. And about his son Judah, he says, You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. 
like a lioness. Who dares to rouse them? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. A thousand years later, Judah's descendant David held the ruler's staff, reigning over the kingdom of Israel. And yet he wasn't the one who was ultimately promised. Because God promised David that his son would always be on the throne of Israel. And yet his son Solomon died and the kingdom split. And there was never a king over all Israel again. And then a thousand years after David, Jesus of Nazareth began his earthly ministry. As he preached and healed and cast out demons, many people started to recognise that actually this man, this was God's promised ruler, the descendant of Judah, to whom the ruler start belonged, the son of David, who would reign forever on David's throne, saving Israel from her enemies. He was the great lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Many of them expected him to overthrow the Romans and restore the kingdom to Israel, but Jesus didn't rampage through the Romans like a roaring lion. Instead, he was sacrificed like a lamb. He was hung up on a cross, butchered. But when John hears about the lion, he looks and he sees a lamb, looking as if it had been slain. And yet the lamb is not dead. On the contrary, it's alive. Very much alive. Not only alive, but standing at the centre of a throne, the centre of God's throne, surrounded by the four living creatures and the 24 elders, and we're told that his seven horns and seven eyes are the seven spirits of God, the all-powerful, all-seeing Holy Spirit, which the Lamb sends out into all the earth. This lion lamb is the crucified Christ Jesus, died and raised to life, exalted to the right hand of the Father, pouring out the Holy Spirit and ruling over all creation. He is the one who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, to reveal God's inheritance for his children. Why? Well, we're told it's because he is the one who has saved people to be God's children. This is the gospel. And when the four living creatures and the 24 elders hear it, they burst out in song, a new song, because something new has happened. God has done a new thing. And they cried out, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom of, and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then hundreds of thousands of angels join in, and they they seem worthy as the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. And the song builds 
to this huge crescendo with every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them crying out to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. And the whole creation is resounding with praise for the Lamb who stands at the centre of the throne. Not as a competitor to the Father, but as his heir, his executor, the faithful witness, whose death in our place brings glory not only to him but to the Father, who planned it all from eternity past. The Father who in his sovereign power and love has perfectly brought it to pass through his Son. Jesus, the Lion, the Lamb, is able to open the scroll. He's worthy to open the scroll to reveal the glorious riches of God's inheritance for his children. And so now the key moment has come. The Lamb begins to break the seven seals. And we wait with anticipation. What's the inheritance? What are we going to get? Well, we get a glimpse of the future here as we wait for our inheritance to be revealed. And frankly, the future doesn't look great. Because when the Lamb breaks the first four seals, each of the four living creatures cries, Come. And a terrifying horseman emerges. We're looking at chapter 6, verses 1 to 8 now. We read about these four horsemen and we wonder who are they? This white horse, this red horse, this black horse, this pale horse. Who are they? Well, we actually get told. <laughs> we get told that the fourth rider is dead. And the horse that he rides on is a pale horse. Or in Greek, a chloros horse, a sort of pale greeny chlorine colour, kind of like the colour of a horse that's been ripening for a couple of days. <laughs> this one is dead, and that actually gives us the key to understand the other riders. The third horseman riding a black horse and holding a pair of scales represents famine. John hears a voice among the living creatures say, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, two pounds of wheat and six pounds of barley, that is pretty much enough for an adult to live on for a day. But that's about it. So you're spending a day's wages just on the food you need to survive. And you can forget about luxuries like wine and oil. The second horse, riding a fiery red horse and carrying a large sword, is given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. It seems to represent the war. And the first horseman on the white horse, carrying a bow and wearing a crown, riding out bent on conquest, well, he seems to represent, well, conquest. But what are we seeing here? Are these supernatural beings? Are these sort of things from a, a Marvel movie. Creatures that are going to appear from the future, or in the future, to ravage the earth. But then if you sort of think about it, well, no. I mean, 
conquest and war and famine and death. These are not like weird concepts that no one's ever really come across before. No, they've been with us for pretty much the whole of human history. They've continued to ravage the earth from John's time to our own. You may not have been touched by them yet, but your grandparents and great-grandparents probably were something like a quarter of Australian men fought in World War One, and half of them were killed or wounded. And nearly a million Australian men fought in World War Two, and a hundred thousand of them were killed, wounded, or captured. Now that's why just about every town in Australia, no matter how small, has a war memorial. Because in a 30-year period, just about every town in Australia lost a fair chunk of their best young men. And actually, Australia has gotten off pretty lightly compared to most of the world when it comes to wars and famines. Although Indigenous Australians still feel the ongoing impact of conquest in a way that many of us will probably never fully understand. And all of us, if Jesus doesn't return first, will be struck down by death. The fourth horseman will get us all eventually. <coughs> Is this something weird from the end of history? No, this is history. This is the big picture of life in the present age. Conquest, war, famine, death. It's normal. But it's different for Christians, right? Like, I mean, after all, God is on the throne. Our Father is ruling. Jesus is Lord. Where is people? Everything is going to be hunky-dory, right? For Christians, at least. I mean, it's all health, wealth, and prosperity from here on in. This is your best life now. No, actually, no. <laughs> Have a look at chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white word, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. The picture we're getting here. Life's not better if you're a Christian. Life is going to be worse in many ways. Because Christians suffer from the first four horsemen, like everyone else. But we also suffer for following Jesus. And a great many Christians suffer to the point of death. I'm told that in the last hundred years, more Christians have been killed for their faith than in the prior 1900. And there's going to be more. That's what they're told, isn't it? Until the full number has been reached, there's, there's going to be more. This is our world. This is our world as we wait for our inheritance to be revealed. And if we're going to navigate life well, we've got to get this into our heads. Because if we don't, we're really going to struggle. Christians constantly find themselves shipwrecked because they didn't think life would be hard, or at least not as hard as it's turned out to be. They thought that if they trusted Jesus, they'd be insulated from bad stuff happening. 
But God actually tells us the opposite. Far from being insulated from the bad stuff happening, by following Jesus, you become vulnerable to more of it. If you follow Jesus, you will suffer. Paul says everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And the persecution, the suffering, may be far worse than you ever imagined. People walk away from Jesus every day because they didn't expect to suffer. They think that God hasn't kept his promise because they're facing suffering. But actually, this is what God promises. He promises you are going to suffer. If you want to follow him, you will suffer. Why is it some sort of genie who will grant all my wishes and keep me safe from any being going bad from them? No, that's not how the God of the Bible deals with suffering. He has entered into our suffering in the person of his son. He himself has suffered and died at the hands of sinful people. He could have snapped his fingers and done away with it, but he didn't. He didn't avoid suffering, but he does bring good out of it. You've got to let this sink in. You've got to get this. If you think that God's will for your life is that it will be trouble-free, you're wrong. Look at the Bible. This is what it says here. God promises that life will be hard now. Maybe harder than you ever, ever imagined. You've got to get it into your head now so that you don't shipwrecked when life gets hard. Conquest, war, famine, death, persecution. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In other words, surprise, surprise, a life following Jesus looks like Jesus' life. Suffering, rejection, death. We haven't been raised from the dead yet. That comes later. And it will come. But for now, we cry out with God's people, How long, sovereign Lord? And yet that address is important, isn't it? Notice what they call it. Sovereign Lord. Yes, God is the Sovereign Lord. In the midst of the chaos and the evil, he is still on the throne. It's not Satan opening these seals. It's the Lamb. It's the Lord Jesus himself. As he prepares to reveal the inheritance that God has promised. And that reassures us that although there may not be justice now, justice is coming because the Lamb is in control. And the justice begins when he opens the sixth seal, chapter 6, verse 12. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And this is not a literal description, this is figurative. After all, if the mountains are removed, how can the people in the next verse try to hide them? <laughs> but just because the language is figurative doesn't mean that the event isn't real. 
Now this is a figurative description of the actual end of the world as we know it. It's a figurative description of the very real day of judgment that is coming. And here's the striking thing about it. It's those who had seemed to be most successful, the princes, the generals, the rich and mighty, along with everyone else, both slave and free. It's those ones who are now fleeing in terror. All those who had seemed to so successfully navigate life. Now they are sunk, terrified, by the day of God's wrath and of the land. But before God unleashes his final judgment, John hears another angel cry out. One who holds the seal of the living God, and he tells the four other angels, holding back the, wing, the wings of the earth, to wait until he has sealed the servants of God. The same seal that had been used to seal the scroll is now used to seal God's people, showing that they belong to him. And now, just like John heard before about the lion, and turned and looked and saw a lamb, now he hears about 144,000 from the tribes of Israel, but he looks, and he sees a great multitude that no one can count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And just like the lion and the lamb were two angles on the same thing on Jesus, so the number of from the tribes of Israel and the great multitude that no one can count are actually just two different angles on the people of God. From one angle, the people of God are faithful Israel. You might notice that the tribes are not quite right. They're not exactly the twelve tribes. Ephraim and Dan, the centres of idol worship in Israel, aren't here. Instead, Joseph and Levi are counted instead. This is not those who are genetically descended from Israel. This is faithful Israel. And yet, from another angle, we see that faithful Israel is actually now the entire people of God. More than can possibly be counted from every nation, tribe, people, and language. People from all over the world. And they're wearing white robes, washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. Holding palm branches, as Israel used to do when the king approached the temple. And they praised the greatest king of all, God the Father and the Lamb his Son, the heir who sits on the throne in the heavenly temple. And notice, notice that they don't cry Hosanna. That's what you used to do when the king was coming up to the temple. Wave the palm branches, cry Hosanna which means save, save now, save please. And they cry. Why? Because he has saved. Instead they cry out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then all the angels around the throne, they fall down and they worship God. Amen, they cry. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders asks John, verse 15, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? And John gives a very sensible answer. He said, sir, do you know? Pretty good answer, actually, because as it turns out, the elder does know. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation 
They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's the blood of the people of God. Well, not those who have always been very good. Not those who have always managed to stay clean. It's those who have been made clean by Jesus' blood. Those who have hung on to him through the great tribulation. What is that? What's the great tribulation? The great trouble? Well, what trouble have we seen in Revelation so far? We've seen the trouble brought by the four wars, conquest, war, famine, and death, along with the persecution of God's people, all of which culminates in the day of judgment. In other words, the great tribulation. It's life now. In this world, up to and including the day of judgment. The older I get, the more convinced I become of that. The world is, well, there's much to enjoy about it. Is God's good creation, and yet it is a place of trouble, hardship, persecution. And yet these people have held on to Jesus, they've trusted him through thick and thin, and now the day of judgment has come, and they are safe. Marked with God's seal, kept from his wrath, by the blood of Jesus, which has washed them clean. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. And in another twist, the lamb becomes the shepherd, and he leads them to springs of living water, flowing water that fills them with life, eternal life. And God Himself will wipe every tear from their eyes. This is the picture we get. This is what we look for as we wait for our inheritance to be revealed. This is the big picture. So let's try and pull all this together. If you want to know how to navigate life, then we need to know the big picture. Well, what Revelation 4 to 7 shows us is that the world doesn't revolve around you and your plans. It revolves around God and His. And God's plans revolve around Jesus, whom He sent to die for our sins, who He raised to life, who He enthroned as Lord over the entire universe. And it is this Jesus who is in control as we wait for Him to bring us into the inheritance that God has planned for his children. That doesn't mean that life will be easy now. Life in this age is marred by sin and its consequences, by conquest, war, famine, and death, and persecution. But worse than all of that is the final wrath of God against sin that will be poured out full strength on the day of judgment. And the only way to avoid that wrath is by being cleansed from our sins through faith in So here's the big picture. When it comes to navigating life, there's actually only one decision that really matters. Will you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Because besides that, every other decision just really pales into insignificance. 
fascinating picture. You can imagine two people, we'll call them Jack and Jerry. Jack's a very capable guy, he's smart, he's attractive, he's caring, he's kind, he's wise. He managed to snap up the best looking girl at uni, who unbelievably actually happens to have a great personality as well, and compliments him perfectly. They're the dream couple. They have three great kids who do well at school, and everybody likes them. He's made great choices in his work, which means he's been promoted. He's got a great income, he's got an influential position, but he hasn't let it go with his head. He's the boss everyone wants to work for. His mates look up to him, his wife's friends are all consumed with envy and wish their husbands were like him. Jack lives a long and successful life. He retires in comfort. He dies peacefully in his bed many years later, surrounded by family and friends. Jill, on the other hand, has a really tough life. Much of it because of bad decisions that she's made. Her husband turns out to be a nasty piece of work. Her friends have warned her about that while they were dating, but she was in love, she ignored them. She has three kids too, but she struggles with postnatal depression, a whole range of different illnesses. She's made really dumb medical choices, and her health ends up worse than it was to start with. She struggles to make ends meet. She takes on a series of jobs that were never going to work, and she goes nowhere. She makes bad choices about what to eat. She sometimes drinks too much. Her kids end up doing drugs, and though she loves them, she doesn't know how to handle them. She makes a series of bad calls in her relationship with them, and she ends up alienated from her own kids. <coughs> and she struggles on with a pension that barely helps her to make ends meet. She relies on a soup kitchen and leftover bread from a local bakery. And after all the series of illnesses, both physical and mental, she dies alone in a third-rate nursing home. She's dead for hours before anyone notices. Who better navigate life? Jack or Jill? Plus Jack, isn't it? When it comes to navigating life, Jack was a winner and Jill was a loser. Except there's one thing I didn't tell you. When Jill was in high school, she heard from a teacher about Jesus. And she knew then and there that she needed him. And so she entrusted herself to him. Yeah, she made a lot of shocking decisions in life. But she never let go of Jesus. And he never let go of her. But Jack, Jack never really felt any need for Jesus. I mean, after all, life was going pretty well without him. In fact, following Jesus probably would have made life a lot harder. Probably would have mucked a lot of stuff up for him. So what will happen when the Lamb finally opens the scroll? Where will Jack stand? Where will Jill? Will Jack continue winning at life? No. For all his success in life, he'll be like the other kings of the earth. The princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, who thought they'd navigated life perfectly, but life always revolved around them. They turned their back on God, and now they cry out in terror at the wrath of the land. Well, Jill, for all her foolish, even at times flat out wrong or wicked decisions, will stand before the throne of God. Clothed in white, 
washed in the blood of the Lamb, warning with him beside springs of living water, as God himself wipes her many, many tears from her eyes. And who was this is bring out of that water? It's not Jack. It's Jill. For all her dumb and disastrous decisions, she made the one decision that actually matters. Yeah, she had a pretty rubbish 70 years of it. But gee, eternity looks good. While Jack exchanged a few decades of glory, 70, 80 years of comfort, for an eternity of misery. Guidance from God about navigating life? Well, here it is. The gospel is guidance. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He was raised to life as Lord, and he is in the process of bringing people to God from every nation, tribe, people, and language, washing them in his blood, keeping them safe from God's wrath and sin, that we might reign with them forever. That's the one decision that actually matters. Will you believe that? Will you trust Jesus? You want guidance from God? Here it is, right here. The gospel is guidance. That's the thing that Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please forgive us for thinking and acting as though. The world revolves around us rather than around you. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for his forgiveness. He has brought and bought with his blood. Heavenly Father, please help us to trust you, to decide to follow you. Father, help us to make that one decision that actually matters we might know you and live in confidence.